0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. The word of God speaks to us. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Father, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Hope you are well. Uh, if we have had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, love to get to love to get to know you. And um, hey, this morning we uh, we're going to be talking about. Um, Really, the beating heart behind the gospel, and so if you're here, uh, I, w- I want to say specifically if you're here and you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. It means a lot to us that you'd be here. Um, we 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 just want to say like, there's no question off limits. If there's questions about what Christians believe and why we do some stuff we do, like there's just no question off limits. Come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. I'll be right up here at the end of service. But what we're talking about is is if you're curious about Christianity. Much of the center of the gospel, center of what Christians believe is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and so I'm just going to ask you to lean in. I'm going to ask you to bring your questions and, uh, and, and to lean in and, and let's see, Let's. I'm, I'm asking the Spirit of God to speak to all of us, but I'm asking Him specifically to speak to you. Um, friends, I want us to be astounded this morning because what we're talking about in, as we talk about the love of God and what that does in us is astounding. And we often take it for granted. I do I don't want us to take it for granted today. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's ask God to speak to us uh, and, and, to, and to help us see things that maybe have become cloudy and foggy in our own souls. Um, so God, Spirit of God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our minds? Yes. But God, would you speak to our hearts and would you shape our hearts today? I'm asking that you would change us that you would transform us, that you would make us into the image of your Son, that you would form us to look like Jesus and to walk in the way of Jesus. God, as a church, we want to love you, and we want to love people well. And we admit that we don't often. So would you shape us, would you teach us, and would you mark us as a people of love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are spending, we're in the middle of a short little series talking about the mission that we have as a church. And we'll go ahead and throw it on the screen. Uh, If you've been around for any length of time, you would have seen this before. But when we talk about what we want to be as a church, what's our mission as a church, is that we want to, to be a church that multiplies gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. Now, it sounds, rolls off the tongue. That sounds all right. That was not because your pastors are really slick and did a nice whiteboard session. And we're like, hey, what are some creative things we could try in the city? That's not what it came from. What it's come from is is the pastors of this church over years looking at the Bible and going, what does the Bible call us to? What does the Bible call us to? We're not trying to bring our ideas. We're trying to say, what does the Bible call us to? And let's go be obedient to it. And so this is a way of summarizing kind of the, the, the leading edge of what we want to be a, as a church. Last week, Chad talked about in what, what we could call the what of our mission, that we want to multiply gospel communities. What, much of the center of what we do as a church is we want to see discipleship groups multiplied and community groups multiplied, frontline congregations multiplied. We want to see new churches planted. We want to see movement because as the gospel transforms lives, we want to see more of these communities multiplied, right? Derek next week is going to talk about this the last part that we want to push back darkness. In one way, you could say that that's the how, how do we do these things as a church? We are, are moving towards as light and dark places to push back darkness. Today, what we're going to talk about is the middle part, love God and love people. In one way, you could say this is the why. Why do we focus on this mission as a church is because God has called us to love him and to love others. So let's talk about that this morning. I want us to look at this passage in Matthew uh, 22 for a minute, and then I want us to ask two important questions that, that emanate out of that. And let me just, let, me just uh, let you know, those are not easy questions that we're going to wrestle with, but I think they're important ones. So we're going to look at this text, and we're going to look at two questions. The first is, why is love so central to the Christian faith? Why, when we talk about Christianity, are we always talking about love? And number two, how can we grow in our love for God and our love for people? You ready to go? Good, because we're not, we're not going anywhere else today. So this is it. Hey, look at Matthew 22, verse 34. This is the passage that Micah read, but I want us to, to sit with it again. But when the Pharisees heard that he, speaking of Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, it's always a lawyer, isn't it? Sorry if you're a lawyer in the room. No, I'm not sorry. I'm glad you're a lawyer. Just no offense. Ask him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now let's set context for just a second. This is happening between the time when Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem for his last week before the cross. He walks into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry where people are worshiping him. They're they're exploding with energy because the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, this Savior of Israel has come and they're excited. In a couple of days they're going to kill him. So the question is like, what happens in between? And this is one of the stories that happens in between. It says there, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, it's important to understand a little bit of context here. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. They were not friends the Pharisees represented kind of a a religious legal class that was trying to understand the details. They were were the legalist of their day, trying to understand the details of the law, how how far can you walk on the Sabbath before you violate it, how how, how do you keep that law, and they 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 had all these complex teachings around how to obey the Old Testament law that God had given the people. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are like, hey, just read the words, love God, go about your day. They were kind of like these loose and floaty kind of priest spiritualist of the day. They, but, and they, got, they did not get along regularly except for when the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend because neither of them liked Jesus. It's Jesus the way he would teach, the way he would lead. People were drawn to him they were drawn to him, and the way that he taught, though, often undercut the way that they taught people to live. It undercut the way the Pharisees told, told Israel to live, and it undercut the way that the Sadducees said they should live, and so they're, they're ganging up, in a sense, trying to take Jesus down. They're like, we have to take this guy out before he leads too many people astray, So the Pharisees try first to try to take him out, and that doesn't work. And so then the Sadducees step in, but now the Pharisees are like, all right, we're going to step up again and see if we can trip up Jesus. So they send in a lawyer to ask this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Again, the Pharisees were the legal experts. They 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 had these detailed teachings around all 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And they would—they had all these ways to define and describe what it meant to be obedient and disobedient to this law, and they're trapping Jesus here because they're hoping he's going to say something that's going to make everybody else dismiss him. Do you see what's happening? They're trying to trap him into saying the wrong thing. They're trying to trap him into saying the wrong thing. But I want you to don't miss this. The Pharisees were not asking a real question. The Pharisees were not coming to Jesus going, hey, I have a real question that I need you to answer. They were trying to play with it, the situation. They were trying to trip him up. Do you see this? They're being, uh, they're, they're they're not, they don't have a real question. They're not asking in good faith. And and it would be in that moment, you could totally understand Jesus going, I'm not going to play your game and just kind of walk off to the side. But notice this. They're not asking a real question, so they don't deserve the truth, but Jesus gives them the truth anyway. They're not asking a real question, but he gives them the truth anyway. Hey, side note, can we just take a break and own that when we look at the Bible and we see stories like this, we often tend to look at this and go, Pharisees, how could they do something like that? And we think that we're like closer to Jesus than we are to the Pharisees. Wrong. Wrong. In this story, you are much closer to the Pharisees than you are to Jesus. And it's right for us to stop and recognize the way in which we play with Jesus and we ask questions that we don't really have, uh, that are not honest questions. We come to, we come to, to God and we, or to Jesus and we go, Jesus, why don't you just do X? Fill in the blank. What is that thing? We come to Jesus with questions that are like, uh, Jesus, why won't you let me do blank? Or why are you getting in the way or saying no to this thing I want to do with my life? We're we're asking God these questions, but here's what we're actually asking. We're trying to get him to take our side, to join our team, to join our tribe, to agree with us and say, yeah, Jeff, you really are smart. Let me applaud you. We often come to Jesus with questions that aren't real questions. There are attempts to manipulate him. We don't deserve the truth. The Pharisees didn't deserve the truth. And yet, to both the Pharisees and to us, he speaks truth. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's pointing them straight back to Deuteronomy 6. In other words, what Jesus is not doing is giving them another law. He's like, hey, you have 613. Let me give you a 614th, and it's more important than the others. He's like, hey, the, the, quest, the answer to your question is in the test, the Old Testament law. It's been there the whole time. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, before he gives them the law, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, to love him with everything you have. And then he simply says this, in extension of the way we love, as we love God, we will begin to love the things that God loves, and he loves his creatures. So love God, and as an extension now, love people the way you would love yourself. Every commandment that God has given, Old Testament, New Testament, stem from those two things. All of it. This is why I say this is the beating heart of Christianity. That everything emerges out of this love. His answer was so profound, the lawyer had no response, and he walked off. But can we note the fact that often... If we've grown up in anything even kind of Christian or kind of religious, we've probably heard this statement from Jesus one way or the other, and it's become kind of old hat, and we're no longer shocked by it. Can we stake just a moment and be shocked by that answer? That everything that God calls us to emanates out of these two commandments, to love God. And to love people. It should shock us. We need to wrestle with these implications. And, and there's a whole bunch of questions that emanate out of this. But I want us to deal with two of them. The first is this. Why then is love so central to the Christian faith? The answer to that question is this. It is central to the Christian faith because love itself is central to the very character of God himself. It's important to understand this. God is not, is not um, a guy who tends to love more than other people. Love is not like tangential to God. Like, um, you know, God's in heaven and occasionally he does stuff. And yeah, they're they're, they're out of love. They're, they're lovable. They're lovely. They're, 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 he just does lovable things. That's not what we mean when we say that this is the center of him. God is love, First John says. He can't not love. That means that every single thing he does emerges out of love, including lots of things that we don't think of and we don't associate with love. You see, we don't learn what love is by looking at the world around us. We only learn what love is by looking at the God who is love himself. There's a whole bunch of voices in our day, right? That we're surrounded by them trying to tell us what love is, trying to define love, trying to describe love. Whether it's as as simple as rom-coms and they're weird, I don't just bonkers, man. What they try to put out there as love is is just not. Maybe you just turn to the politicians or you you turn to the philosophers that try to tell us what love is or political movements about how to love. But what the Bible tells us is it puts on display a God of love. And so when we see God, we see love. So what I want us to do is I want us to spend a little bit of time just looking at a few passages in the scriptures and let the scriptures tell us what love is like. Before we get there, I want to read this quote from Gerald Bray. Gerald is a a theologian, and he wrote this really thick book. And if you love thick books, like if you're looking for a paperweight, it's a great one. Actually, it's got a lot of good content in it. So you can weigh something down, and you can learn a lot as you read it. And, And he's doing this systematic theology. In other words, he's trying to encompass all of Christian theology, all of Christian doctrine. Here's the title of his book, God is Love. What he's trying to get us to understand is that everything we believe about God, everything we believe about the world emanates out of that reality. That God doesn't just happen to love. God is love. He says this in the beginning of his book. The Bible is the record of a relationship between God and man. It explains how God loves what he has made and wants us to enjoy the fruits of his creative acts in fellowship with him. But it also tells us how some of the highest creatures rebelled against him and rejected his love. And that the leader of that rebellion seduced the human race into following him. Out of this tragedy has come the message that God has not abandoned us, listen to this, but instead has revealed an even deeper love by sending his only son to live our life, to die in our place, to rise again from the dead, so that we may dwell with him in eternity. This is what the Bible teaches us. Now, if we were to try to go Genesis to Revelation through the book and look at all the ways in which God uh, is love and, and explain the ways in which we learn what love is by looking at God, we would be here for days. And, and Derek told me I couldn't do that this morning, and I only have a little few minutes. And so if you want to know which of our elders doesn't like the Bible, it's not me. He can, re- he can respond next week. I will. <laughs> But I want us to do this. I want us to look at three passages of Scripture, and I just want us to listen to them. I'm not going to do a whole lot of uh, explanation on them. I just want these, to read, uh, to, to, in a sense, to read us. So uh, turn to Hosea chapter 11. And while you do, let me set this book up real quick. The book of Hosea, is a pro- Hosea was a prophet that God chose to speak to the nation of Israel in the middle of their rebellion. And the way in which he was to do this is God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute glad I didn't get that call. Uh, Go marry a prostitute. And in front of the world, in front of the town where everybody's watching this marriage, because Hosea is a public figure, he is supposed to show faithfulness to this woman who is not faithful to him as a way of showing the world what a faithful God, how a faithful God loves a faithless people. Hosea is a picture of God's love to those who are not lovable. So look at this in Hosea 1, 11, chapter or verse chapter eleven verse one, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now listen to this: the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Can you hear the paternal love here? This father towards his children going, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up by their arms, but they did not know that I was the one that healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Now listen to this, and I bent down to them and I fed them. That's God's posture towards a people who have rejected him, hated him, and gone after other gods. That's his love to faithless Israel. Now turn to John 15. These words happen at the same, they're happening within probably hours, maybe a couple of days of that Matthew 22 passage that we said. It's happening in that same week, that last week of, of, of Jesus's life on this earth before his resurrection, and he, in Matthew 22, he's speaking publicly so that everybody can listen. But shortly after this, he pulls all his disciples together, and he begins to teach them before he goes to the cross. And this is a part of that teaching. He says this to his disciples. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life For his friends. Now, listen. His his disciples didn't yet understand the full weight of what that sentence was because he was not yet on the cross, and they didn't think that's what was about to happen. And in a mere hours, that sentence was going to bring on a whole new life. As they watched this man who was innocent lay down his life for his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, listen, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you would love one another. Romans 5 goes so far as to say that it was while we were his enemies that Christ died for us. It wasn't like we became buddies and he's like, all right, now I'll go love you. No, no, no. While we were his enemies, he went to the cross to to call us as his own and to make us his friends. That's, friends, is the love of God in the gospel. Now look at Romans 8. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing this to a group of believers, this young church in Rome, and he's explaining to them uh, the gospel in in one of the most beautiful articulations uh, ever, ever written down. And Romans 8, in a sense, serves as kind of a crescendo of this expression an ex- a, a crescendo of this good news of the gospel. And look at this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Listen to, I, w- I want you to be shocked by these words, even if you're super familiar with them. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? things. Now, can we just stop for just a second and recognize that sometimes, like, we're, we're longing for God to give us something else, to give us something else. We're waiting for him to give us this thing that we feel like we lack, and what he's saying here is, I, in, in Christ, am giving you all that you need. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now listen, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Maybe famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So his answer to who shall separate us? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Friends, none of those things get the last word. Yes, are we going to walk through times of darkness, times of suffering, times in which we're wanting something else from God than we feel like he's given us in the moment? Are there moments in which we're facing persecution and we're feeling the loss of these things? Are we ever going to be in spots like that? Yes. Is it going to win? No. It doesn't win. For we are more than conquerors, not because we're strong, not because we're smart, but through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, there's a lot of broken things that we face in this world, and none of them can separate you from His love. there's a few brief takeaways I want to mention before we go to our second question, and that's this. This reality of God's love does not lead necessarily to what is often popularly called the prosperity gospel. There's a, a, a way of teaching out there that says that if, if, uh, if you're in God's favor and because he loves you, he's just going to load up your 401k. He's going to take that Broken down Corolla. And he's going to give you a Corvette in its place. He's he's not he if 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 you love God like you're going to be eating steak and lobster, not PB and J. Like just just all this stuff. Like if God loves you, He's going to give you all the stuff. And that's that's just the one of the most unbiblical doctrines ever foisted upon humanity. Because what we see over and over and over again in the scriptures is that God walking with His people in the midst of a broken world, surrounded by brokenness, surrounded by darkness, sur- surrounded by tragedy, and God saying, I love you and I'm with you now until the end. I'm not going anywhere. The love of God does not mean that every whim is going to just magically emerge. It's just something deeper and more profound and more beautiful and more lasting is mine. Second thing to note is that love is not passive or abstract. Kierkegaard in his brilliant work, The Works of Love, does does some work here to to link the fact that love cannot just be like a posture of the heart that doesn't work itself out. He says love by necessity will work work out in fruit. In other words, if it's love, it will produce fruit. Now, is it going to be perfect fruit? No. In our lives, no. In God's, yes. But in ours, no. But you can't talk about love And it be like completely separated off from any kind of action as if it's just some abstract ideal. No, no, no. Love gets on the ground. It gets in the dirt and it works itself out in our lives. Another thing to note is that love is not a moderating influence on other doctrines. You'll sometimes hear this. People are like, yeah, God's a lot of justice, but he's also a God of love. As if love just existed to kind of counterbalance some of these doctrines that we don't like. It's not the way it works. Everything that God does emanates out of who he is and he is love. There's no separating those things. Lastly, let's say this. If you can't earn God's love, then you can't unearn it. Some of you need to hear that because you live your life trying to dance around things and trying to be lovable so that God will give, put his affection on you. And let me just say this. You didn't earn it to begin with. You can't earn it to keep it. It's a gift. It's a gift. You don't earn God's love. You receive it and you reflect it. You receive it and we reflect it. So let's move to our last question. How can we grow in our love for God and our love for people. There's a whole lot we could say here, but I want to just, I want to focus in on just a couple of next steps for us, because here's the thing, friends, what we're saying that this is our mission as a church. We want to become the kind of church that multiplies gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness, which means we need to work and lean towards cultivating a love for God and a love for people. And I think one of the first places we need to start is this. We need to do a little bit of spirit-led self-analysis or self-assessment. Because the reality is all of us love. The question is, what do we love? If you want to do some, and I would highly recommend you pick up this book by James K. A. Smith called You Are What You Love. You Are What I, You Love. In this book, what Dr. Smith is trying to do is help us understand that all of us love something. All of us love things. The question is not, do we love? The question is, what do we love? And those loves, those affections shape us, they form us. So the question, friends, is, what do you love? What do you love in terms of ultimate things? What do you love? Because we're being shaped right now by a cultural moment that's telling us all kinds of things that we should love. That's trying to tell us all the things that we need to set our affections on, that we should go after, that we should try to grasp. The world around us seems to be marked by division, rage, selfishness, and fear, right? And we may look at that and go, that's because the world doesn't love. No, 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 that's not true at all. The reason those things mark our cultural moment is because our our world loves deeply. It just loves the wrong things. The world tells you to love power. The world tells you to love success. The world tells you to love some kind of pleasure or fulfillment. The, love, the, the, the world tries to tell us to love your freedom. And what they all boil down to is simply like love yourself. Chase your own desires. Don't care about anybody else. We live in a world marked by, by wrong loves. And it's in that culture that we are to be the kind of people that love differently. If you go back to the early church, there's these fascinating stories over and over and over again where you get, you get people that actually hated the church writing things, profound things of like, I don't understand that these people called Christians because they just treat everybody different. When the plagues hit in the first couple centuries of the church, when everybody was fleeing out of the city, it was only Christians that were running into the city to where the people were suffering from the plague in order to love them and care for them. And people watched. They noticed. We want to be a people that in, the, in a culture dominated by anger and hatred, we are marked by love in a cult- countercultural way. That points people to something better. So how do we do this? I want to give us four things. Real quick. If we are going to grow as a people that love God and love people, we have to start with this. We have to receive the love of God as a free gift. Friends, when I said that you have to receive, we we receive love and reflect love, it's because none of us generate it out of our souls. None of you naturally, in and of yourself, love naturally. None of you do. Only God does. And you can't just take this idea and try to work it out. You have to receive his love, rest in his love, experience his love, soak in his love first. Some of you are trying to do a whole bunch of things that are loving, but you haven't slowed down and owned the fact that you don't feel loved by God. what you need is the promise of Scripture that says he, He loves you and nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. Second, we need to cultivate our affections for the good. We need to read Scripture and let it tell us what we should long for. Let the scripture cultivate our affections that we long for and love the right things. This, this, is, a, this, is, a, this is a practice that we have to do. It doesn't come naturally. Naturally, we're, we're caught up in the ways of the world that tells us to love all the wrong things. What we need to do is actually spend time cultivating our heart and cultivating our affections. Not just cultivating our actions, friends. Not just doing things that we could label love, but actually cultivating something deep inside that says, I want to love other people truly. And that takes time. But we need to cultivate our affections towards God and towards other people. Third, we need to practice loving God and loving people. I say practice because it doesn't come naturally for any of us. I also say practice because love, true love works itself out into reality. If you uh, have been in this church for any length of time and you're like, hey, nobody here has hurt me or, or done something uh, hurtful to me, um, can I just give you a promise as, as a pastor in this church? Uh, give it some time. It'll happen. And I mean that not because we're going to try to hurt each other necessarily. But we're imperfect people. We live in community imperfectly. We will step on each other's toes. We will say things we shouldn't say. We're going to want those words back and can't get them back. There are things that we will do wrong because we're longing for the wrong things. We're reaching for the wrong things. This, this doesn't just happen, we have to practice, which means also we've got to be quick to forgive others when they fail. This is something that we work out in community groups, in discipleship groups, on Sundays, in our neighborhoods. We practice. Friends, I come in often on Sunday mornings, and I don't want to worship God. My mind's distracted. I'm, I'm frustrated by something in life. And, and what we actually need to do is stop and go, no, no, right now, God, I'm setting my affections on you, and I'm choosing to worship you. Friends, as we practice, as we practice these things, We're going to move into being defined as a church of worshipers, of family, and of neighbors that were marked by our worship of God. People look at us and go, they treat each other like family, good family. And they actually move towards their neighbors out of love and compassion. Who does that? And we can go, nobody naturally, only God does, but God is changing us. Let's practice it, friends. And then the fourth thing I want to give you is this, fail. Then repent and try again. Guys, can we just let the pressure off? None of us love perfectly. None of us will love perfectly. But C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, uh, things that are truly good are worth doing poorly. In other words, we're not going to fail on purpose, but we're going to go and try, and we're going to to move towards it. And we may fail, yeah, okay, so we're going to learn, we're going to repent, and we're going to learn, and we're going to try to move towards doing it different later. But when we put ourselves in this kind of pressure cooker where I, I have to perfect it right now, we'll actually pull back from actually moving towards love like we should love. I want to close with these words out of 1 John 4. And I want to read them because this is John speaking to a church like ours that would have had the same questions we have, the same struggles that we have, the same temptations that we have. And this is, this, let's just let John be our pastor for a moment and say these things to us. So hear these words from John, 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now verse nineteen. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he cannot, or he does not. Uh, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then he lends with this. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What John is simply reminding us of is what Jesus taught us in Matthew 22. That the center of all that we are called to, Old Testament ethic, New Testament ethic, emanates it out of love of God and loving your neighbor as yourself. If we, friends, are going to be marked as a people that are multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness, it will be because we are learning how to love God and love people. It's going to require tenacity. Because there are times when you try to love people and it's really hard and you want to quit. It's going to take presence. You don't love through Instagram. You love In relationship, it's going to take courage because there's going to be things that are going to test that love. They're going to test the bonds of relationship inside of our church. But the word and the way of Jesus is our guide, and it's our gift, and it's our life. And if God has loved us, He won't stop. Let's pray.